0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Andrew Fisher. Thank you all very much. It's an honor to be here. Over the last week or so, as people have been talking about the talk and seeing advertisements for it, people have said to me, Father, I can't wait to come to your talk because I really love the Black Plague. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. One person said, Father, I, have, I really have to be honest with you. Of all the epidemics, it's in the top five favorite I have. <laughs> so I hope tonight we can relax, have some fun, enjoy some snacks, and talk about one of the deadliest chapters in world history. So a very interesting topic and night tonight. But I also wanted to ask Deacon Sabatino what he meant because when he called me about two months ago to asked me to come speak tonight, he said, Father, I have a topic, and when I got it, I thought of you. (laughs) So I didn't understand when Deacon Sabatino said he thought of me with the Black Plague, but actually, he and I have talked on several times about the importance of studying or learning church history. It's our family tree. Everyone loves to do research to figure out where they come from or how the pieces of their life fit together, and it should be the same for us as Catholics, to show our connection back to the saints all the way back unbroken to the apostles. And I also tell people that as someone who loves and has studied church history, history is also apologetics. It helps you to appreciate the faith and to defend the faith. About three or four years ago, I was on a a plane going down to Atlanta to give a conference, and a guy sat next to me and said, are you a Catholic priest? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I used to be a Catholic. And I said, oh my goodness, you're still a Catholic. What happened? Come on back. And he said, well, I read a book. I said, you read a book? And he said, I I read the Da Vinci Code. And I said, You read the Da Vinci Code? And he said, and I stopped going, I stopped believing in the Catholic Church. And he said, because the book taught me, and he named three or four things. And I said, sir, we have exactly 25 minutes till touchdown. I'd be happy to talk to you about anything, but may I ask you one question? He said, Yes. And I said, when you went to the bookstore, went to Barnes and Noble's to buy that book, what section of the bookstore was it in? Did you find it in the history section, the theology section, the philosophy section? He said, no, I found it in the fiction section. (laughs) And I said, that book would find its place on the shelf next to the story of Snow White and the Three Little Pigs. (laughs) So for us, it's so important to know our faith, know our church history, because it teaches us so much about, as Sabatino said, how God is at work in the tangible, concrete events of human life and choices in history. How sad it is sometimes in books and newspapers and TV shows to hear how critical they are of the Catholic Church, oftentimes using false historical claims. Some are pretty wild claims. And other times, when they tell the story, they only tell half the story and not the whole story. And the half the story they tell is usually the half that doesn't fit in to what the Church is really all about. So I tell you tonight, just because it's in print or it's on the History Channel and it reversed the Catholic Church or it's in the editorial section of leading newspapers, please know, do your homework, and find out what the real facts are about the Catholic Church, the teachings of the Church, or Church history. So tonight I'd like to speak to you about the plague and its effect on the culture and history of Europe in the 1300s and how it really did play a, a landmark moment in the beginning of many things in European history and Church history. And then next Thursday, if you are still courageous for more plague, come on back. Because next Thursday as a second part in the conclusion of tonight. I'll talk about the Catholic Church specifically and what it did during the plague. And many people are very critical of the church during the plague. The Pope and the bishops and the different things the church did. And I'll be happy to show you how God did indeed use the church. So tonight, we're going to set the stage. Tonight, I'm going to get you excited about the Black Plague. And then next week, I'm going to bring in for a landing to see how God used the church in so many ways. So let's begin. Are you ready? Ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Wow. This children's nursery rhyme originates in England in the 1400s. Children would sing this song while standing in a circle and holding hands, and then at the conclusion they would laugh and all fall down. Did you know that... Is really about the bubonic plague that hit Europe only a few years earlier? I can tell by your gasp; some of you didn't. Well that's the price of admission tonight, good I taught you something. But if you listen closely the song actually gives testimony to the symptoms endured by thousands of people who became infected as well as a sobering reality that it brought immediate death, separation from loved ones, and the breakdown of society. Ring around the rosies? Well, that describes the onset of the plague. At first, the infected person developed a red rash where they had been bitten by a flea. Then that area became swollen and turned into a large black tumor. The black area of swollen skin formed a ring around the original red or rosy flea bite. Ah. Pocket full of posies. Describes the strong smelling herbs that one kept in the pocket of your clothes or worn around your neck to avoid the smell of death that was constantly in the air. In the 1300s, many believed that bad odors were actually causing the killer plague. In a world with limited medical knowledge, the smell of death was thought to carry death. For this reason, people carried strong smelling perfumes or flowers with them, even wrapped in their handkerchief as they walked around to avoid breathing the same air as infected people. Ashes, ashes, spoke of the pale skin of the plague victim as they sneezed and coughed in the last stages of life. Their face turned a gray ash color as their organs literally shut down. We all fall down. Spoke of the realization of mass death. Note that we is used. No one or two fall down. We all fall down. As the song and game come to its conclusion, everyone lets go of their friend's hands in the circle. And then everyone falls down to the ground alone. It was symbolic of the plague breaking the bonds of family and loved ones. Now, psychologists often say that people use humor to help cope with feelings of fear or helplessness. Sometimes we call that gallows humor. Perhaps this may explain why adults would teach children a song about the most devastating epidemic in world history, and the conclusion would end with laughter and smiles. It was a sign of a society still feeling powerless over an invisible death that conquered Europe. In any case, you'll never listen to that song again, will you, the same way? But tonight, let's talk about the Black Plague, one of the most tragic and yet one of the most interesting chapters in world history. Let's first set the stage. What was Europe like on the eve of the plague? The century before the plague saw Europe in a time of relative peace, economic prosperity, and population growth. Everyone was united in one faith, the Catholic faith. Kingdoms were under powerful monarchs, who in turn wove Europe into powerful alliances. It was a time of building great Gothic cathedrals, the beginning of the university system, and even schools of art and music. New roads and new improvements in travel united Europe in a network of social and economic life. For many, the start of the 1300s seemed to be filled with bright promise for society and culture in Europe. Now, life wasn't perfect, there were regional famines or floods. The English and the French had little squabbles constantly, political conflicts and military battles. Some people lived in poverty. However, culture seemed to be going in the right direction and population was increasing. Then, everything changed. A mysterious death spread across Europe, wiping out whole cities, whole families in a matter of days and weeks. No one had ever seen anything like this before. For some, it seemed right out of the Bible. It seemed like it was a divine punishment for sin and vice. People were fearful. For others, who looked at the world through the eyes of science, they asked themselves, could this be the end of science? This is the end of the world, the end of the ecosystem. How interesting. Fear and despair spread across the world among both the poor and the rich, peasants and kings culture that had been celebrating the best in humanity was now seeing sickness and death on a daily if not hourly basis. How bad was the plague? Birth and death records in the Middle Ages were not always well kept, but historians estimate the plague killed an estimated 100 to 200 million people. Please try and understand that would equal one-third to one-half of the entire population of Europe in the 1300s. Let me repeat, one-third to one-half of the population of Europe. That would mean one out of every three people here tonight, one of every three people in your home, in your pew at Mass, one of every three people in your neighborhood or in your children or grandchildren's schools. Remember in the past, famines and disease have been regional and passed quickly, maybe for a summer or a few months. You had heard something about tragedies in other places in Europe, far away, someplace different. However, this mysterious death came to all of Europe and it stayed. There was no place to hide. There was no refuge. No one could flee. The plague reached its peak between the years 1346 and 1353 and became known among the people of that day as the Great Pestilence. Later generations would call it the Great Plague, for it came to actually symbolize death and destruction in popular culture and history. The suddenness of its arrival, its power over humanity, where it created a series of religious, social, and economic upheavals that would have profound effects on the church and upon all the world. Why do we study or even come here tonight to talk about such a sad chapter in history? Simply put, because the Black Plague would directly affect the faith identity and culture of Europe. A faith, identity, and culture that was Catholic. In fact, during this great moment in history, the questions people ask and the actions they took would help plant the seeds in culture that would later become known as the Renaissance, the French Revolution, and the Protestant Reformation or Revolution. However, I add one more reason that we study this chapter. It gives an incredible insight into humanity. Human beings are resilient. Despite the complete upheaval of society and culture, the people of this age did not give up. They cared for the sick, showing a great respect for the dignity of all human life. They kept their families together. They shared their limited resources with neighbors, and they kept their faith alive. They kept going to church. They kept preaching the gospel. They kept ordaining new priests. They kept the faith going knowing that God was with them even when it seemed dark. Similar to Pearl Harbor or 9-11, people rallied together and persevered. I want to make sure and point out that of all the mortality lists in Europe compiled during the Black Plague, the highest levels of mortality belonged to two groups, medical doctors and Catholic clergy. Both in great numbers stepped forward to serve the sick and suffering at great, cro- at great cost. We today can learn a lot from the church in the 1300s. All right, let's jump in. Let's get to meet the Black Plague. Medical experts believe the Black Plague can be traced back to populations of fleas living in Central Asia or Western Europe in the 1300s. The fleas in that area carried a certain bacteria known as Yersinus pestis. These Asian fleas found refuge by attaching themselves to large, fat, black rats. These rats lived in large populations and often survived in their proximity to human beings. These rats lived off the garbage of human homes or campsites. But since rats die quickly from the disease, the fleas needed new hosts in order to survive. And since the rats were living in proximity to humans, the fleas attached themselves to men and women. When a flea bit a human being, the bacteria entered the bloodstream and drained into the lymph node. The lymph node would consequently swell to form a large painful tumor called a bubo, which is where we get the word bubonic from. This painful tumor would grow into the size of an egg or even an apple. The tumor would manifest itself in the groin, on the thigh, in the armpit, or on the neck. Although at first the bite area was small and rose-colored, the infection area quickly became swollen and turned black. The infected person could have several large black tumors across their body and thus it became known as the Black Plague. Once bitten, the infection took three to five days before a fever, flu-like symptoms and small tumors appeared. Once the plague manifested itself, the person died in another three to five days. So think about it, between bite and death was less than a week. Records tell us the plague was fatal in 90% of the people who were infected. Please note that since it only took a few days to manifest itself, you could be a carrier of the disease and go other places before you knew it and before other people knew it as well. Since the plague was bacteria and carried by the human bloodstream to the lungs, plague victims would produce contaminated droplets of blood or mucus when they coughed, sneezed, or vomited. Sadly, this meant the victims of the plague now passed on the infection to those who cared for them or who lived in their home. Medical experts say that what started was one plague that now took on two forms, a bubonic plague spread by fleas which settled in the human lymph nodes and a pneumonic plague spread through contact with human blood or mucus, an infected person. Now there are two ways the plague was being spread. Well, how'd the plague get from Asia to Europe? Research has shown the plague left Asia via travelers and soldiers on roads built by merchants that connected southern Asia to the Black Sea. Mongolian armies patrolled these areas between Asia and southern Russia, often making use of crowded military camps along these roads. In the summer of 1346, reports of the plague broke out among the Mongolian army as they launched an attack on Italian merchants who were staying in fortified trading posts in the region of Kaffa, located on the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea. During their unsuccessful siege, the Mongols began losing great numbers of their soldiers due to this mysterious death that was in their camp. Growing short on manpower, the Mongols began catapulting their dead into the Italian fort, hoping the plague-ridden corpses would scare the Italians into surrender. But soon, the plague spread both to both sides, and both sides quickly fell victim to this mysterious death. However, after a siege lasting several months, the Mongols withdrew due to the loss of so many members of their army. Immediately, the Italian merchants loaded up their ships and quickly departed for Sicily. On those merchant ships were sailors who were now infected with the plague, and in the belly of the ship were black rats carrying fleas, eating the grain that was stored below to be sold once it arrived back in Italy. Now we can see the great exodus of the plague from Asia into Europe. In October 1347, these merchant ships arrived in the port city of Messina in Sicily. They quickly unloaded men and merchandise and then set sail for their home port of Genoa. Sadly, during that quick visit to the port, many sick men and rats departed the ship. Here the plague came to a totally unsuspecting Sicily, a port city that was an international port of call. A few days later, once in Genoa, the plague fully manifested itself among the entire crew of all the ships. And despite civil leaders attempting to quarantine the ships, it was too late. Sailors had left the ships and returned home to their wives and children. In addition, the rats had escaped the ship to land, and the food infected by the rats was now being sold in local markets. From this starting point in Genoa, the plague quickly spread through mainland Europe. Like an invisible army, the plague moved westward and north along the roads of Italy. Several months later, by the spring of 1348, the Black Plague had infected Italy, France, Spain, Germany, Portugal, and even into the Scandinavian countries. By the summer of 1348, England and Scotland were ravaged by the plague and by 1350 reports of the plague were even showing up in Moscow and parts of Western Russia. Why did it spread so quick? Much attention is spread to the speed at which the Black Plague spread over vast distances in such a short amount of time, basically all of Europe in just a few months. Although there had been periodic outbreaks of disease in the past no one had ever seen anything spread so quickly, it consumed all of Europe. And remember, to the mind of a European in 1300s, to my country and the neighboring countries, that was the world. It seemed like the entire world was swallowed up by this invisible illness. Well, why did it spread so quick? First, the use of ships. In the past, epidemics spread over land, which took more time and allowed for defensive measures to be put in place by civil authorities of the Black Plague spread through naval merchant ships. By the 1300s, merchant ships were built with more scientific designs. They could go farther, faster, and carry more items to be sold. The world was now linked by ports and merchant ships. If a ship was infected, it could bring that infection into another port city and sail away in a few hours. Oftentimes, this could be done quickly before anyone could even see the symptoms and the infection was spreading. Secondly, weather conditions. Almanacs from the Middle Ages report that the winters of 1346 through 1350 were very wet and mild in Europe. This was perfect condition for the spreading of the plague. Bacteria usually goes dormant in cold weather. So if Europe had had its usually cold winters at that time during these key winters, then nature would have provided a break or even possibly an end to the plague. But because of the warm weather, It spread and spread and spread. How sad. There was a chance to stop it, and the weather didn't cooperate. Third, lack of sanitation. The plague hit hardest and quickest in medieval cities, while not as hard in rural areas. Most urban centers, cities, and towns had overcrowded conditions, where several families lived under one roof without indoor plumbing. Often, garbage, human waste, and infected bandages were just dumped in the streets or gutters directly in front of the door or windows. There was no plumbing, no waste removal, which led to other diseases and people having weaker immune systems. Sadly, the rat population quickly multiplied in such large cities, especially where houses and buildings were overcrowded and unclean. Rats and fleas continued to breed, and the plague continued to spread as these cities were overcrowded and dirty lack of hygiene in the Middle Ages bathing was considered unhealthy it was a common belief of the day that human sweat provided natural protection for the body therefore if you bathe too often it weakened your skin and increased your chances of illness in fact it was rare for people to take more than two or three baths a year perhaps only on special occasions in addition people did not make it a practice to wash their hands wash their clothes or wash their cooking utensils as you can imagine from our science today, this would help spread the plague and infection quickly, even before symptoms could be seen. I would add, interesting, that people obtained their drinking water from a neighborhood well. Usually this was obtained during the morning or evening hours to avoid the hot midday sun. So people shared water buckets and all got water at the same time. If you were sick or infected, you went to get your water at the same time the rest of the town did and used the same buckets as they did. How interesting. A lack of hygiene helped spread the great plague. Sleeping conditions. Did you know that most families in Europe at the time, unless they're wealthy, had the entire family sleep together in one bed? Beds were often a large, simple mattress of cloth stuffed with dry straw. In one bed, there could be family members, house guests, and animals. Sadly, if only one member became sick and began coughing and sneezing, Everyone in the family, even your guests spending the night, could all be infected. In addition, fleas could easily nest and hatch in straw. Remember the old warning, don't let the bed bugs bite. (laughs) At the same time, another factor was a changing in agricultural conditions. In the century before the plague, there had been a growing birth rate and a steady increase of population in Europe. However, there was a problem. The farming and food production techniques had not kept up with the demand for food. In many areas of Europe, farms and large estates did not have the ability or the foresight to think ahead to increase food population in case of emergency or disaster. Further, there was limited storage. You didn't in those days produce more food than you needed because they really didn't have refrigerators or places to store the food. You basically produced exactly what you needed day by day or at least week by week. In addition, most of the farmers were serfs or peasants. They didn't own the land. They had no decision or power over their land. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't increase the farming or crop population. Only the lord of the master, the manor, who saw all things, only they could do it, and they weren't farmers. Sadly, when the plague did hit, some areas of Europe did not have adequate food supplies. And so that brought about additional problems of famine and poor nutrition. After all, if you're sick or weak or starving, your immune system is even weaker to fight the plague. Lastly, the new use of land in Europe. Tax records in Europe in the early 1300s show that large landowners decided to go for something more profitable than crops. They began raising more animals and building mills. Herds of animals provided for the growing demand for meat in the 1300s and mills provided for their growing demand to manufacture wool and textile products. This set the stage for two problems. First, there was less food to be harvested, and secondly, animals can get sick. Animals have an immune system just like we do. And so if one member of the herd got infected, guess what? The others did as well, and they died. And then not only the land was not harvested, because it was set apart for animals, but now you lost your herd as well. Think of mad cow disease. It takes one and spreads to the rest of the herd. I'd end by saying the Hundred Years' War also played a factor. France and England had been at war since 1337, and the war would continue until 1453. It was on and off. There were military battles across the French countryside that destroyed crops and also men. War required soldiers, so for several decades, the strongest and healthiest men were taken away from the villages to fight. Therefore, when the plague hit Europe, it hit many towns where the only people left behind were unfit for military service due to age or health. A slow and drawn-out war across France meant that plague attacked many villages in England and France that were populated by the weak, by the elderly, by women and children. Sadly, many of these victims would quickly give in to the plague. So, what was the plague like? Did whole towns really perish? Yes, think about that for a moment. Historians estimate that 30 to 50 percent of Europe's total population died of the plague. 30 to 50 percent. In the space of two years, one out of every three people was dead. It's a truly mind-boggling statistic. For this level of fatality, overshadows the death rate of Europe during the Second World War, and more than twice the number of people in modern world that were murdered by Stalin during his reign in the Soviet Union. Some authors liken this to the world having a nuclear war, where in just a short few days, such a large segment of the population could be wiped out. Between 50 and 75% of Florence died in a single year, in the first six months of the plague. In Venice, 60% of the population died in the first years. And medical records in Venice state that at its height, 600 people a day died in Venice. What was it like to live in a city where the population disappeared overnight? Life changed for everyone. Imagine your butcher or fruit vendor suddenly dying and the market shutting down. Imagine your carpenter or local repairman no longer taking appointments, no longer wanting to talk to you for fear of spreading the disease. Imagine horse stables and blacksmiths not keeping trade routes and horses going. Imagine having no one to repair your house or your bridge because the workers all died. Imagine graveyards being filled and bodies not being buried because all the gravediggers had died of the plague. Imagine looking out your window to see the constant stream of people carrying their sick in horse-drawn carts to convents, monasteries, or parish churches. Remember in this day there were no social workers or hospitals. You had to go to monasteries or you had to go to places run by religious orders. Imagine the sight of dead bodies piled in the streets because there was no one to take them away. Imagine parts of Europe where government, civil courts, commerce, and entire cities came to a halt. City festivals, patron saints' feast days, carnivals, and processions were all postponed for fear of spreading the plague. During this time, even weddings and engagements were postponed. And of course, this delayed the birth of children to replace the dying population. Why didn't doctors do something? Well, medicine in the 1300s knew something about disease, but didn't fully understand the spread of disease. Many believed the disease was spread simply by smell or by the air. The bad smell was strong and upsetting. Many were convinced that avoiding the smell of death, the pocket full of posies, that would solve everything. But of course, it didn't. People burning incense or lemon leaves or pine in their house or carrying a handkerchief with cologne This didn't solve the problem. Many doctors, nurses, and people who'd studied medicine all quickly died because they were there on the front lines helping plague victims. Sadly, society still demanded doctors. So what did society do? They deputized plague doctors. These were people who had no formal medical training. Or if they had studied medicine, they dropped out of school or unsuccessful medical practice. Not the type of people you want to go talk to. Yet they filled a void for people wanted some medical assistance and were willing to try anything. Plague doctors wore large white lab coats over the street clothes. They wore glasses and goggles, big hats, large gloves, and a long mask that looked like a beak where they could take a handkerchief, wrap it in cologne or perfume, and shove it up in the beak so they wouldn't breathe in the fumes. If you ever Google plague doctor, you'll see a mask that people sometimes still wear at parties with a big huge beak. They were your plague doctors. However, due to the demands of society, people would turn to anything, including them. However, they didn't really do anything. Their main advice was to apply leeches and frogs to places where the black plague boils were shown. What did this do? It got them into trouble, and they lost their jobs. In fact, we really do not celebrate plague doctors. And if you ever look into the plague doctor phenomenon, you will see only one name you recognize, His name was Nostradamus. Why didn't kings or civil government do something? Well, in the 1300s, Europe was organized in the feudal system. There were two classes, upper class and lower class. The upper class had wealth and power and the ownership of everything and all the titles to go with it. Tax records in England in the 1300s tell us that the land was owned by the king and royal family. A small fraction of it was owned by the church. The lower class of the serfs simply worked as indentured servants. And that's the way it was. Society of the time said that if the poor do their job and the serfs do their job, they make money and provide food and things for the upper class. And then the upper class will be generous and take care of the lower class. That's the way the feudal system was set up. However, what sadly happened was there was a big problem. And that was that when Black Death came, it was like a tornado that interrupted the entire social and economic order. Overnight, the plague destroyed whole villages of serfs, farmers, and peasants, leaving the lord of the manor with no income, no money, no food. Widespread death among the upper class led to social disorder. If the owner of the land lost his son, guess what? There was now no one to pass the land onto or to pass the royal title onto. The future of land and the future of society to the upper class seemed in jeopardy. Such disorder led to an increase in immortality. Crime and violence became rampant as people looked for food, medicine, pure drinking water were a place to stay because many towns began to oust people once they had a cough or began to manifest the disease. If the manor system breaks down, the king does not receive taxes and the king cannot pay the army or the police or civil judges. In some areas of Europe, criminal activity, riots, and vice led many people to give up and think the world was indeed coming to an end. Mobs roamed the countryside and roamed cities looking to seek revenge on groups that rumored to be perhaps behind this evil. Women labeled as witches, gypsies, or palm readers were beaten or thrown out of towns. They put a spell. That's what caused the Black Death. Other rumors circulated the Black Death was called by groups of Jewish people who had poisoned the water supplies of cities. And in some cities, Jewish people were rounded up and deported, sadly even killed. Unknown travelers, even the homeless wandering town to town, were killed or thrown out of cities, thinking they were bringing the plague with them. It was a very sad time to see such panic and fear spreading. Kings and landowners took refuge in their castles and closed the doors of their manor houses. Because of their wealth, the upper class could retain some of the creature comforts that they knew prior to the plague. However, that was not so for the serfs because they found themselves trying to work and no one to help them work the farm. It was truly a difficult time. And for the lower class, there was a sense of social injustice and a rising desire for freedom and to stop what was being forced upon them. Here we can see one moment where the Black Plague will plant seeds for what we'll later know as the revolutions in Europe. In the perfect feudal system, the upper class took care of the lower class, no questions asked. However, many of the ideas spoken of by the crowds of the poor now would later reappear in the French Revolution. In 1358, riots in Paris among the poor seeking food led to the storming of the royal palace. The king and upper class fled the palace in fear. In 1381, a riot in London known as the English Peasants' Revolt saw angry moms demanding the removal of all restrictions on peasants. Soon the protest march turned bloody and people stormed the offices of public officials. By the end of that day, the English peasants' riot had killed several civil officials and even marched their bodies through the streets. This riot in London led to other riots throughout England. In the mid-1300s when the plague began several Italian cities saw bread riots where angry mobs blocked bridges and roads until they were given bread by the royal families and civil government. In the past police and army would stop such events, however, they were no longer being paid and they fled. In addition, due to fear of the plague many civil or military leaders would not go out to public places to talk to the crowds. There was no one to calm them down or to somehow broker a deal. It was clear to the old order of society that society itself was becoming a victim of the plague. In 1632, William Shakespeare published Richard II, a play based on the life of the Kingdom of England during the time of the Black Plague. King Richard II ruled England from 1377 to 1399. In one scene, Richard II tells his advisors, the Black Plague has forever weakened, the medieval kingship, and his order of society. Richard II quips that the anger and stability of the lower classes threatens, quote, to wash the balm of holy oil that was put on me when I was anointed king. Since kings were anointed in an official rite of blessing, Richard II alludes to his power literally being wiped off his head by the peasants upset at the Black Plague. The plague literally arose a sleeping giant, the lower class. (coughs) As the Black Plague spread across the farms and the manors of England and Europe, it was an extreme shortage of farmers. If the upper class wanted food, they had to change the social order. By the end of the plague, serfs were now being set free, given their own land, and even paid for the first time. These serfs had found a political voice, tasted freedom, and even begun to want more and more of a voice in society and politics. At the end of the plague, many of these freed servants decided to leave the land that they were no longer tied to, and took their skills to the city. Many sociologists will look back at the time of the end of the plague and saying these were the skilled middle classes that would later become unions or guilds that would play a major part of the Renaissance in forming a middle class. So what was it like to live in a world turned upside down? Let me bring things to a conclusion now by talking about some first-hand accounts. If you're still awake, put your seatbelt on. Some of these stories will knock your socks off. French medical records report that 800 bodies a day were buried in the city of Paris at the height of the plague. 800 bodies. The Italian poet Giovanni Bucacciati wrote that the height of the plague he watched from his window as the dead were taken away. He estimates he witnessed the burial of 100,000 bodies in one year. Baldassare Bonatti, a witness to the plague in Florence, wrote of shock at gravediggers who were becoming rich off the victims of the plague. Each week as the plague went on, the gravediggers increased their price, demanding more and more, and they earned the name vultures. Walking the streets each morning with a cart, they took away the bodies of those who died during the night who had been left out in the streets by family members or civil officials. These vultures would then bury them in mass graves and return looking for money. Every time I read that, I can picture a Monty Python skit (laughs) taking place. (laughs) A collection of essays written by nobles in Florence in 1348 tells how the burial rites and customs of mourning the dead had to be changed due to the plague. Due to the increase in demand, merchants charged outrageously high prices for caskets, flowers, and candles all an essential part of Italian funeral rituals. Soon the government stepped in and fixed prices for funeral homes and morticians. The government forbade the ringing of church bells and death notices trying to keep people from going outside for processions and going to cemeteries, the last place you wanted to be if you are trying to keep free from infection. In Florence, the mayor limited funeral processions to only immediate family and two candles. That's it. In addition, laws were passed forbidding the practice of dressing the dead in nice clothes, trying to keep grave robbers from going to mass graves and digging up the bodies, trying to find nice things. Henry Quinto, an English writer and critic of the Catholic Church, stopped in the French port of Marseille long enough to write a letter to a friend. In his letter he spoke of watching a group of men bury the bodies of priests left on the streets, all who had died tending victims of the plague. He wrote... And I quote, not one of the 150 Franciscans survived to tell their tale. What a sight. One Pilgrim's Journal from the late 1300s gives an account of a man passing through a small village in western England. As he came to the village of Lancaster, he stopped at the small parish church to pray. The church doors had nailed to them a list of 400 names of parishioners, all who had died of the plague. As the man left the town, he did not see one person in any direction. He saw, quote, only sheep and cattle wandering throughout the fields with no one to tend them. Jean Genet, a Welsh poet, wrote about his experience in the plague in April of 1349. Quote, we see death coming in our midst like black smoke, a plague that cuts off the young, a rootless phenomenon that has no mercy for anyone. Woe to me if I have the shriveling in the armpit, For it is the form of an apple, like the head of an onion, a small boil that spares no one. Great is its evil, like a burning cinder. It gives grievous things to those who are healthy and normal. In Siena, Italy, more than half the population died of the plague. In 1348, the historian Angelo de Turre described his experience of the plague hitting his own home. Quote, the mortality in Siena began in May. It was cruel and horrible. And I don't know where it began to tell. And it was impossible for the human tongue to recount what I saw. Indeed, one who did not see much horror could be called Blust, and the victims died immediately. They would swell beneath their armpits and their groins and fall over while walking. Father abandoned child, wife abandoned husband, brother abandoned brother. For this illness seemed to strike through breath and sight, and so all died. And no one could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. Members of a household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could, even without a priest, even without a mass or ceremony. Nor did the death bell sound. And in many places Siena dug great pits and piled deep the multitude of the town. And they died by the hundreds, day and night. And all were thrown into ditches, all covered with earth. As soon as those ditches were filled, we dug more. And I, Angelo de Tuna, buried my five children with my own hands. Unquote. A civil official in the port of Catena in Sicily wrote of his experience in 1347. He reported many ships entering the harbor that had been placed in quarantine. Quote, sailors on these ships were seized with illness and could not run away from death. When inhabitants of the city discovered what was going on on board the ship, we refused them access to the city and hurried them quickly out of the harbor. Many of the sailors who became sick while in port were left behind in our hospitals only to die hours later. When these poor fugitives died, they were simply thrown into deep trenches outside the city walls to be buried with all our own townspeople. The famous Florentine historian Matteo Volani kept daily records of what he saw. His journals gave vivid descriptions of the town folk that were buried in mass graves with no identification given to the dead. Most famously, his last volume, he wrote, quote, many lands and cities were made desolate and the plague lasted until, and was left blank. Because he died while keeping journals of the plague in his city, he never got a chance to finish his own plague report. So permit me just a moment or two to come to conclusion. People often say society is best reflected in art and literature. What was the art and literature like during the Black Plague? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Well, we can start by looking at tombs Prior to the 1300s, people were buried in large slabs of stone. In fact, they were highly decorative. If you look at medieval knights, you actually see a sarcophagus. You see the knight in a suit of armor or the damsel with her hat and fine clothes. They were buried with a sense of joy and a sense of peace. During the Black Plague, when people were buried, they were usually buried in simple graves or mass graves. But if they could afford a decorative grade, you start having graves etched with pictures of skeletons looking out or pictures of hands with an hourglass turning the the sands upside down. That began during the Black Plague. It says a lot. You also have pictures of people in their cemetery vaults died during the Black Plague where they're walking and they're talking or a skeleton has their arm around them, kind of like death is walking them as they walk. Kind of an interesting view of society, isn't it? Another is the artwork known as the Dance of Death. Beginning the style of the 1300s we see artwork mainly in France and other parts of Europe of skeletons dancing. You would look out and see skeletons playing games or skeletons cooking or skeletons sitting around a fire telling stories or you'd see people and skeletons in the same scene walking back and forth. In fact, sometimes you'd see people dancing at an evil banquet with a skeleton dancing with them and it was kind of the view that the black plague had given humanity that All our days are numbered. Who knows? Could be you, could be you, could be today, could be tomorrow. That was the way that art and literature saw at the time. Even sacred church art began to change during the plague. In the past, statues and paintings depicted Jesus and saints in glory. But during the plague, more images of Jesus and the agony in the garden began to show. Images of Our Lady dressed as a widow or in mourning, Our Lady of Sorrows became more popular. And also we see that many of the saints honored In the past for purity and courage, the Roman martyrs now were being shown as saints who provided food for the poor, raising the dead, or curing the sick. One piece of literature to talk about, the Decameron. It's one of the most famous works of literature written during the plague, written in 1353 by the Florentine poet Giunofani Boccaccio. It's considered among scholars a masterpiece in classical Italian poetry and storytelling. Today, we call it a novel or a mini-series on cable. <laughs> the Decameron tells the fictional story of a group of seven young men and three women who flee the plague-ridden Florence in 1348 to hide in a deserted villa in the countryside till the plague passes. Each day, they're doing chores to keep things going. But one of them would take a break. And at the end of the day, their job was to tell an entertaining story. So every night, they told a story, an elaborate tale of romance, greed, power, all among the Italian noble families. Sadly, many of these stories use the Catholic clergy as the bunt of the jokes. But this story articulates a growing despair about the future of society and lack of confidence in noble society, the feudal system, nobles, kings, and clergy. And a new theme was emerging called Lady Fortune or the Wheel of Fortune. In other words, one could rise or fall like that. The plague had no favorites. It could be your time any time. So enjoy life while you could; it could be yours any time. As a footnote to history, this work, the Decameron, inspired Geoffrey Chaucer to, a few years later, write Canterbury Tales, a story of pilgrims passing through the English countryside who take turns telling stories on their way to a place of pilgrimage, Canterbury Cathedral. Likewise, Chaucer's storytellers are not always kind to the Catholic Church and kind of see life and society filled with corruption and vice. So. Let me end. How did the plague affect the faith of Europe? You know, I probably should stop here because that's my talk next week and I have to have you come back. Always leave people wanting more, right? But because I like you, and Sabatino says that a few more minutes to go, I'd end by saying that this is where we get into apologetics. Many people look at this time and point fingers at the Catholic Church saying that the pope, the bishops, the monasteries, the monks, the priests, they are corrupt. They didn't do anything. In fact, claims are made that people left the Catholic Church in droves and gave up their faith in huge numbers during the Black Plague. I often read in articles, both not only for preparing tonight, but just because I'm an avid reader of church history, people saying people gave up on the faith. How could God do this? How could prayers and masses not be answered? But I have to tell you that I'll answer all these claims in their fullness next week. But I really want you to know that Actually, the plague awoken deeper faith in people. Instead of people turning away from the Catholic Church, people came to the Church seeking faith, looking for the sacraments, restless about questions of life and death, requesting works of mercy and charity. The demands placed upon the Catholic Church, both spiritual and material, at this time were incredible. In addition, like the rest of Europe, the Catholic Church had no time to prepare It literally met the needs day to day, hour to hour, with faith, hope, and love. Remember, in this day in the 1300s, there was no United Nations, no Red Cross, no Doctors Without Borders, no UNICEF, and no National Guard. Where do people go knowing they could be loved and cared for? The church, their local parish, monastery, or convent, where they received without question and without price Faith, hope, love, food, medicine, and support. In fact, next week if you come, I'll go through briefly a list of many of the saints that died during the plague who are models of sacrifice, generosity, and charity. However, I can say this, that people did ask questions about God during this time. Death and suffering always lead people to ask more questions. Those questions are good because they can often lead to conversions or deeper faith. There's no such thing as a bad question if our question leads us to Jesus Christ and our question leads us to the sacraments. However, some of the voices going on at this time began to go simply from theological to political and social and economic. And this led to nationalism. If my king or the lord of the manor won't help me, then no political leader can help me. We have to do it for ourselves. And in doing so, who would the model be of leadership? Who would the model be of established universal jurisdiction and power? Be the Pope, be the Vatican. So for some of the voices being raised at this time questioning the socio-political economic status of the society in Europe, many people began to take it and ask questions and some of them actually began to protest saying we have to have more local power, freedom from all forms of passed on hereditary leadership. We need a new social order, a new religious order, a new way of life, free from all corruption. Because people with power and money are corrupted, let the peasants and the ordinary folks let us have our way. Of course, does this sound familiar? This is the 1300s. In the 1500s, this would manifest these seeds in many ways with a rise of nationalism and also Martin Luther and also the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Revolution. You can see in the Black Plague the beginning of the French Revolution, the Protestant Reformation, and I'd end by saying the Renaissance. And I end now by truly saying that when you're faced with such death, either you give up or you find hope and faith. And so for the Catholic Church, coming out of the darkness of the Black Plague in the Middle Ages comes the Renaissance, because the Church is resilient the church has a beautiful vision of humanity and from one of the darkest chapters of seeing death every day comes the renaissance where all the art the music the literature will all say we're made in the image and likeness of god we're made for heaven god loves us his grace is powerful and we are called to be saints one needs only look at the sistine chapel to see the questions asked by catholics during the black plague will manifest themselves in the glory of the Renaissance, the Catholic Renaissance. So here we are, we come to the end of the talk. The Black Plague brought a crisis and turmoil to society that had never been seen before. People called out for help and no earthly king could help. Ah, but next Thursday you'll hear when they called out to a heavenly king, he indeed helped. And he used his church founded upon the apostles to give to Europe and to the world faith and light when the Black Plague brought death and darkness. Next week, we will look at how that church, although divine and very human at times, with limits and flaws, nonetheless was the instrument of God to bring faith and light to Europe. And there we will see saints and miracles. This is how through the Black Plague, the light of the church shine brightly, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Father Fisher. The, clearly, the effects of the Black Plague in uh, Europe were well documented. Uh, how well or poorly were they documented in, uh, in Asia and the Christians of that area? Good question. Uh, the plague certainly hit hardest in Europe and spread, and we can say that because we have the most written archives. We were just talking during the break that uh, England especially kept very clear records of parish weddings, baptisms, funerals. The plague certainly spread because uh, one of the main factors was the boats and the shipping, which meant the Mediterranean. And we don't have as many records there. And that might be because for some parts of the world there, they did not keep those records at different churches. There weren't really hospitals in those days. You know, really hospitals you hear about more next time. Religious orders were known for their hospitality you showed up, you were a stranger, you were sick, you were dying, they would just take you in and they were known for hospitality and so some of the earliest forms of religious life like the Order of Malta which goes back even before the Franciscans and Dominicans they're called the Hesplitter Knights of Saint John of Jerusalem because they took vows, promises, of, it kind of faded out and then over the next couple centuries it would fade back in in certain regions and even today they still have different offshoots of the disease that they can look at and say it's of that family tree. In fact, people had asked a question during the break, and I said one of the interesting things is that historians now are able to go back to some of the graves, or mass graves if you will, dig up the bodies, and the DNA is still prevalent in the bone marrow or the teeth. And so doctors today, if there's enough of it, can actually go and look under a microscope and see the DNA of someone who died of the Black Plague in the 1300s and they have kind of the molecular measuring stick and they can try and, wait. what's the right word, match it up with different diseases in the world today or different diseases they still keep in storage. Father, how did burying bodies versus cremation either contribute to the spreading of the plague or keep it from spreading? Good question. In the day, people want to be buried in a cemetery. People only buried with great pomp and circumstance. And if you're wealthy enough, most people were buried in a church or in some type of mausoleum. <clears throat> so plan A was always a burial. Plan B, in those days, the cremation was done really in case of emergency and also burial at sea or in rivers, too. In fact, the next, the next installment you'll hear. Uh, about bishops and popes giving permission if there was no one to bury the dead to claim a lake or a river for burial and then having a church built on the lake shore so the people could go and pray and have masses celebrated for the dead. But it was a great problem because if someone died, who would bury them? You didn't want to be infected. Or if the person who died left their spouse and children infected, they weren't strong enough to do it. So if you remember, you had grave diggers caught costing exorbitant amounts of money to do it, and in doing it, they sometimes took away the nice clothes you had to the point where the civil officials had to get involved. It's, it's fascinating to think, but the main thought in those days was to be buried in a cemetery, but the cemeteries filled up. Remember the one statistic was, I think it was in Paris, at one point there were five to 600 people buried a day. Uh, Father, I'm curious whether the uh, plague Uh, affected any of St. Thomas Aquinas' thought, whether we'll find out next week and what, if anything we can prepare between now and then. St. Thomas Aquinas' Aquinas' thought. thought. Well, you'll hear next time about what Catholic theologians said about life and about perseverance, and certainly he was one of the pillars of the faith. You'll also hear about the unique work of mendicant orders, that at a time when people needed the education of the faith, you had Franciscans, Dominicans doing most of the work traveling town to town, which is very dangerous because if you were a priest assigned going town to town to preach and teach, you didn't know what town you are showing up in, what your chances were of finishing the, the preaching duty there. So fascinating. Paris was a large city. I don't know the exact number, but it was one of the largest in Europe. Father, I'm curious as to Uh, what the onset of the plague's effect was on the thinking of the French and English royal houses and the propagation of the Hundred Years War, and particularly whether it uh, had any deterrent effect on the desire to make war. Good question. Uh, The Hundred Years War, remember, it was not fought for 100 straight years. It was fought periodically back and forth, back and forth. In addition, In those days, it was kind of gentleman's warfare where you didn't fight all year long. You massed up for big battle, took the winter off. Maybe it was a holiday or a holy day, took the week off. So the Hundred Years' War was spread out and it went for a long time over many generations of both royal families. It was uh, an issue involved because you were going through mainly the French countryside fighting. And in that time, you had whole French villages being, being taken out. In addition, you were taking away from villages men that were not able to stay and do a lot of the farming or a lot of the work. And so those left behind were mainly people who were not healthy enough to fight. And so when the plague hit certain towns and villages, the people the plague was encountering were those who were already sick or weak.
0: Thank you, Father Fisher. Okay, thank you. Pray for us.